Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. We are back. Happy New Year. Took an extra week off there for the holidays to kind of get things in order, but I hope you had a restful and healthy and enjoyable holiday. And here we are. I'm going to tell you about my guests in a second. They're Bridget Fetisi and Jaron Montgomery. But first, a couple quick announcements about the Unspeakeasy. As you know, this is my new heterodox women's community. Lots of big things coming up in 2023. We are going to be unrolling the online community later this month, hopefully. And most excitingly of all, we're going to have hopefully five retreats, five in-person retreats, various places in the country. Two of them have been planned, have been decided. I'm going to tell you about them right now. The first one I may have mentioned before, but I'll remind you is in Los Angeles. That is February 18th and 19th. That's a weekend retreat and it's daytime only. So that's a little bit different than most of them. And it is almost sold out. But if you are interested, go to theunspeakeasy.com and find out about it, request information, and I will tell you about it. The second retreat, and I am hereby announcing this, you heard it here first, will be in the Seattle area in April, April 17th through 20th. It is going to be in a resort in the Cascade Mountains, somewhat outside of Seattle, but I think it counts counts as Seattle area. And uh, we're going to have a very special guest speaker, no other than Katie Herzog, famed co-host of the Blocked and Reported podcast. She's going to be joining us as a guest speaker during that time. And we are going to do our usual thing, discussions, sharing stories, me talking about things you may have heard here and elsewhere. It's going to be amazing. And as always, the retreats are off the record. I'm not going to tell you too much about them right here, but it's a really special thing. So if you are interested in either of those, go to theunspeakeasy.com, request information. I don't really publish specific information about the retreats online, but if you get in touch with me, I will forward you the relevant details. Okay. My guests are Bridget Fetisi and Jaron Montgomery. Bridget is coming on The Unspeakable for the third time, I think. She is a, a very prominent podcaster and writer in the heterodox, or as she likes to call it, politically homeless space. She hosts the popular YouTube show Dumpster Fire, as well as the interview podcast Walk-In's Welcome. She's also a columnist for The Spectator and writes regularly on her Substack. Jaron is a family therapist and also Bridget's husband. And last year, they started a third podcast called Factory Settings, and they describe it as an exploration of politics, culture, relationships, mental health, addiction, and media through the lens of how our built-in biases affect the way we consume information and form opinions. Now, factory settings is a term that Bridget coined to illustrate how all of us grow up with certain assumptions baked in, usually by parents or community. And I wanted to have her and Jaron on to talk about the impact of their own settings on their relationship. They come from notably different backgrounds and what they've discovered in the process of developing this podcast. They also talk a lot about sobriety. They met in recovery 
and how that lens affects their experiences of the culture wars that Bridget has been covering for so long, and also the people that Jaron works with as a counselor. Minor, minor thing here, but for what it's worth, I'll say that about halfway through the interview, there's a reference to Andrew Tate, the social media influencer, whoever he is, who's been in the news lately. When we recorded this conversation back in mid-December, we were only dimly aware of who he was. I'm still only dimly aware, mercifully. But in case you're wondering why that name check went by without much comment, that's why. No big deal. Anyway, this is a really great conversation. So here it is. Bridget Fantasy and Jaron Montgomery, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Bridget, welcome back. I think this is your third time on the podcast. You're a three-timer. I love it. Three I love times. your podcast. Yeah. It's a very, it's a, you're in a very elite group. Um, well, I'm really excited to have both of you. I've been listening to your new podcast. First of all, how many podcasts do you have now, Bridget? Three, <laughs> four? I have a podcast addiction. Um, I think technically it's three. Do you, what's is the third one? Factory um, settings. Oh, dumpster fire. Well, you have the okay, you have walk ins welcome and you have d- dumpster, dumpster fire, fire which mm-hmm. is that's not a podcast per se, it's a YouTube weirdly, it it's show. a YouTube show, but weirdly, a lot of people download it and just listen to the audio. Which oh, is does that make you feel like you're wasting your efforts? Like, no, stuff? it's just hilarious because we have this ongoing in like joke that started on the show where we just randomly cut to a, one of the extremely hot Mexican weather ladies that are out there. It just started and now we do it every episode. <laughs> but somebody last week was like, I finally watched this and it makes a lot more sense now <laughs> that I'm oh seeing it because yeah. if you were just listening to it, it would just suddenly be like, let's cut to this need- random Mexican weather report. You need to have those things where you have a voice describe what it looks like on the screen. Apparently, this is the new thing for for the blind. Right. Like people, when when they go up on stage to give a talk or something, they describe their outfit. Mm, I think Kamala Harris like is the color of their this. shirt. Yeah, she's been doing that. Yeah, she's yes. she's been oh doing that God. and getting dragged on the internet for it. Uh, <laughs> good, she deserves it. Okay, so you have those two projects and now you have this new podcast factory settings it's just incredible the amount of content that one is expected to put out but maybe we'll maybe we'll get to that because i actually you talk about uh addiction and recovery and i feel like there might be some overlap between that people who are maybe in that space or prone to addiction and people who are putting out content maybe <laughs> thought of this right now <laughs> Very astute observation. Because I'm feeling very like almost OCD and compulsive about content. But anyway, we'll we'll get to that. I feel like it's not. I do don't. I don't feel compelled to put it out there though. I I actually there's more stuff that I want to create that I would put out if I had more time and a bigger team. So for me, it's just getting getting it all out of my head. And Maggie is really my cousin and producer has really kind of reined me in and that we're not allowed to add a new project until uh, we've got these plates spinning and it's we're kind of just, you know, automatic. And then once we get to that point, I'm allowed to add another project. 
So she she oh, holds me so back good. in the in a good sense. Yeah, this is actually <laughs> Bridget like, demonstrating remarkable restraint <laughs> with strange. content. She's like your sponsor. She is. She's like she's keeping you in check. That's yeah, what, that's what she I, is. Too many notes. Um, all right. Well, yeah. Well, Bridget, a lot of my listeners know who you are, of course. So, Jaron, why don't um, we just talk about you for a few minutes here? You, I feel like you're you're at least in in a public facing way, you're sort of new on the on the fantasy scene. You are, of course, a married couple and you are doing this podcast together called Factory Settings. Why don't you just like start by telling us what it is and how you got the idea, why you wanted to do it and all that? Yeah, of, of course. Um, yeah, Factory Settings was a term Bridget actually coined several years ago in an article uh, that she wrote about the sort of default settings we grow up with that are instilled in us throughout childhood, uh, based on socioeconomic factors, um, parental figures in our life, education, all these things that sort of build in these defaults for us. She's a Red Sox fan. I'm a Yankees fan, things like that. And it, you know, you can expand it to all sorts of different areas. And we'd always talked about maybe doing something together. We're both in recovery and being of service is a big part of recovery. And we thought, is, is there some something we can do where, where, you know, we get to work together or have these conversations together, but also maybe provide a place where people can get a little bit of help like we've gotten through recovery. So uh, to me, everything in factory settings is a little bit informed by that, that my process, you know, my recovery, my sobriety, uh, we, we try not to make everything about that, but it's definitely informed by that. So a lot of these concepts we talk about gratitude and things like that, come come from that that process of recovery that we're both involved in and i'm a, a associate marriage and family therapist by trade uh, relatively recent to that field uh, so i have some experience working with that population as well and yeah we just have a lot of fun they're like conversations to us it feels feels like date night almost we kind of pick a topic and just go with it Right. It feels like date night that we can listen in on. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that people, some people have said it's voyeuristic almost. Right. Like if I am the person who's just like by themselves at the table, reading a book, like dining alone and pretending to be reading my book while I listen into your date. <laughs> yes. That's, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, that's I, exactly it. Yeah. That's and good. I'm either thinking like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not on that date or <laughs> I feel so sad. I'm so sad uh, and alone. You must have listened to them. them podcast on regret <laughs> where we had an unfortunate error with recording the podcast halfway yeah. through and we processed I, it I in told, real time <laughs> i told bridget i actually um i related to that so much i i was like practically in tears um, <laughs> and having like an allergic reaction when i heard that because anybody who is uh has ever had to use zencaster or any of the <laughs> any of the podcasting software has had this experience it's and it's devastating okay so you guys actually met in recovery which first of all you're not supposed to do so you're already bad right there can you can you explain what you did why you did such a thing <laughs> i know your story but i'll let you tell yeah no there's i know there, it's it is frowned upon or discouraged within the program to date, usually with the caveat within the first year, right? They, yeah, there's they, a lot of boy a, meets girl. And yeah, there's a ton of that. But, babies and but, where else are you going to meet people? Yeah, yeah. it's not a, you can't go to a bar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there there is that. Now we met when I was very early in recovery, 
Mm-hmm. Like uh, very early. Very early. I, I, I had had a number of years sort of sober before coming to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, where I wasn't really using drugs or drinking or anything like that. And then I came to AA. And I think within a, what, the first couple months of me being there, you, we started dating. <laughs> you, I, were you about to say I, I prayed you on prayed you? prayed on me. She prayed on me. I was the newcomer. Oh. I was the newcomer. I remember it well. Yeah, she sat across from me in a meeting and she came over and I remember her asking me how old I was. And I thought that's a very odd question <laughs> to ask somebody is their first interaction because he looked like he was like I, he could have been i had questionable fashion sense he was wearing like a bebop not a bebop like he a was straight wearing those, brimmed baseball hat not folded at all he oh. looked like he could be in his 20s i was like this this guy this kid is like probably 23 that's why i asked and I did, but you wanted to date him. So I didn't think to ask how many days have you been sober because he seemed, I hadn't been going to that meeting for a while. And he, I thought he seemed so much more sober than most people at his, you know, 60 days in or whatever. You're usually, I was a mess. I was crying, (laughs) making plans to go to Hawaii. I was always threatening to relapse. I was like a disaster. And he was like, I've got my routine. I was loving. I was Going glad to, to be sober and a part of AA. Yeah. He, yeah. Was, he was really, really had it together for somebody who was newly sober. So I, it didn't even occur to me that he was not appropriate, not age appropriate in that respect, meaning how long he had been sober. Okay. And how old were you really? Uh, what was I? 43? Yeah, forty two. Wow, I can't, but you looked twenty three. He looked like it in his twenties. I, I, I definitely look much younger, especially if you put a baseball hat on me. I'll probably could get away with early thirties. I was thirty eight. Yeah. So yeah, I I okay. was I was you know I'm not about to like even even if he had been thirty, it still would have been a little bit too much of an age difference for me to. But be that's okay a great age difference. That you have, that's perfect. Yeah, we ha- we're four years. Yeah, that's a yeah, nice that age does. Difference. It feels yeah, it feels really good. That feels like a good one, a good age difference. And yeah, yeah, um, we dated for a little while and then broke up. I could never really get good with the fact that I I felt like I was taking something from him that I had, which was my first year without men and just able to focus on myself. And I felt like I was depriving him of that, which I thought was so important to my sobriety. And then there's always the fear that, you know, you become their quote unquote higher power when in early sobriety, they'll just Mm. replace the drugs that they're giving up with a person. That's not what you look for in a man. That's like, <laughs> isn't that a perfect relationship? You're not anymore. Power. They're just wor- worshiping you. She, she's, she's absolutely right about that, though. And I give her so much credit for being able to walk away from that relationship because I didn't. There were so many positives when it came to shared values and chemistry and a lot of things we were looking for. But I would not have been able to make that decision at that point in my sobriety where I where I could have I could have left. I I would have insisted upon trying to find a way to work it out or get through it when in reality, the timing was just not right. It just wasn't, just wasn't there. 
And then I gave him a coin that said, true love waits. And then I broke up with him. And then she broke up with me. <laughs> wah, wah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and honestly, I kind of was like, well, all right, moving on. That That's just my default, though. That's my factory setting. That's your, that's your factory setting. Yeah. Okay. And so, and you guys spent some time apart and- like 15 Jaren, you went on this m- montage sequence of self-improvement. Yes. Got uh, all sorts of things. I got rid of the getting hats. Getting up in the morning and reading. Yep. I woke yeah, up. getting rid of the hats. That's always step one. Yep, got rid of the hats, woke <laughs> up, read, worked out, got some Invisalign, fixed those teeth. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get new glasses? I don't know if you wear glasses, but I, 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 I feel like, especially for men, eyeglass, that's part of the makeover that women always give them. You got to get new glasses. I do wear glasses, but I also have a bit of a glass fetish or obsession. So I have lots. I'm always getting new glasses. I love frames. I've worn glasses forever. So yeah, I'm sure there was there were some in there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I was waiting, right. waiting so for So you straighten moment. your teeth. You grew a beard. Got, grew a beard. Got well read. Got well read. Okay. Got swole. <laughs> Not really <laughs> swole, but you know, got it. Got in shape a little more, and just you did buff up quite a bit. Got yeah, just started. You know, my program's sobriety, and you know, things started. And going. the whole time you were like, I can get Bridget back if I do these things. Well, there in the beginning there was that, and and I was cautioned against it by everyone in my life. You need to just let this go. You need to just let this go, and. Uh, it took me a while to get to that place. I, I, I did not handle the breakup well for probably <laughs> six months or so. I was, I was convinced uh, because I was convinced we were, we were meant to be like, it was, I had never met someone that had inspired this in me. And I, you know, I've had a number of relationships, some long-term I'd, I'd been married before, but this felt completely unique. And so I, you know, I really spent a lot of time, you know, in therapy and doing, uh, you know, other work is, is this what I think it is or am I just crazy? And I got to the point where I, I had to say, it doesn't matter because she's not here and she's not interested. So it doesn't matter if I think it was real or not. Now there was that part deep inside of me that always believed we were going to get back together. She, she's kind of shaking her head I'm right just now. I think she's thinking of the, the like, tattoo. What a wizard you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I made that happen. Yeah, I even, I, it, yeah, it was it's kind of crazy. I got a tattoo that said "True Love Waits," and and I was yeah, realizing stalker. I like to, <laughs> I like to think that I have strong powers of manifestation from being a hippie all these years, and then. At a certain point after we got back together, I was like, God damn it. I'm on your vision board. <laughs> like, uh-huh. yeah, yeah, really. That's my racket. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So you get back together um, and you, it's like, how many years ago was this? It'll be, it's, we just celebrated two years wedding. So it'll be three, a little over three. Yeah. Three. It was, little it over was three. cause our date yeah, was in okay. September. A yep. little over right oh, before okay. the pandemic From right before the pandemic right before the pandy yeah, yeah. okay good time right okay so i mean i want to mostly focus on the issues you talk about on on your show i know you talk a lot about your relationship and your marriage and now you have a baby which was very unexpected i mean i mean not you know it's not not unexpected like she just came out you, you <laughs> knew you were gonna have a baby but it definitely wasn't planned right yeah 
So that's exciting. So you've got a whole new life now. What, um, so was there something about the conversations around addiction and recovery that you felt not, not were lacking, but that you wanted to contribute to in a different way? Because obviously there's a whole, you know, the sobriety space is big in podcasting and YouTubing and substacking and all of that. So what did you want to bring that was different? That's a good question. I don't know that I even thought about that. <laughs> it's a good question. I've I mean, never you have considered. A, but it's, but, well, and actually, okay, I'll tell you what I think it is because you are, you're talking about tribalism and you're talking about the stuff that you always talk about, Bridget, and that I talk about the, you know, the, the culture war stuff and just sort of the, the psychology of tribalism and factory settings, exactly, you know, what, you know, to your point. So, um, and I think that there's like an interesting intersection between that sort of thinking and just a kind of lack of satisfaction and comfort with oneself. And it's the same kind of thing that often dovetails with addiction. It's all sort of the same sickness. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I think w one of the things that's always interested me is just the different backgrounds Jaren and I come from. So having a lot of the times we'd be having a conversation and I, and it's just fascinating from the perspective of someone being raised conservative versus someone being raised a libtard. <laughs> and, and so the, that was really part of the original thing was we, I think we thought maybe we would speak more to culture war stuff, which I, uh, eventually we will, but honestly, the evergreen topics are what people seem to be really hungry for right now because everything has become so politicized and immersed in the culture war. And that was part of the reason we actually wanted to start having these conversations was just because I think in recovery, it's important to pull out of those separating differences and try and find those topics where we can all relate. And it seems like the show really makes people think of really self-reflect on their own life. Yeah, which is something in recovery and being in years of therapy, I've found immensely valuable is that ability to sort of shine a flashlight on the internal workings, what's going on, why I may be experiencing you know, psychological suffering more in some areas in others. And we get to have these conversations in real time and, you know, re reflect out loud and, and sort of change, you know, our mind, you know, in the moment. I think that's, that's appealing to me at least, because a lot of this stuff, I've done this work through therapy. Uh, I'm, you know, I am a therapist, I'm in AA, but still some of the stuff we talk about, it's, it's almost the first time I'm speaking it aloud or trying to really form it into a, you know, long form coherent sentence. And what comes up for that is really fascinating to me to be able to explore that with Bridget, who I find so fascinating uh, just to talk to. Yeah. I mean, there's so much discussion about people's increased drinking, for instance, during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Like, it seems like there, people got more and more obsessed with politics and feeling alienated from their friends and just like overwhelmed and angry all the time. And they also started drinking, uh, among other things. And so I wonder if that's like something that you've talked about a lot between the two of you, or does that come up in meetings? Like, is that a sort of a, a big kind of part of your kind of larger 
picture of discussion. I love talking about we could we always joke we could talk about recovery all day, but I, I always try to come from the space of we also don't have any answers. I think that both of us really have been through a lot of depression, anxiety, addiction, a lot of the things that we're seeing with the younger population. And one of the things that fascinates me is this obsession we have with mental health. It seems like there's a lot of lip service paid to mental health and everybody actually seems to be going crazier. So I'm fascinated with what what that like disconnect is why, and why people seem to there's so much therapeutic language just in in society now. I mean, I know you experience this probably. You work with a, a, a young population, Jaron. Yeah, the the language has definitely changed. The what you know, a decade or two, two or three ago would only be used in therapy is now common usage. Things like trauma and being triggered and stuff like that. I, I think it's it's interesting. You talk, you Megan, you brought up about the increase in people drinking, and I, it's definitely something. I talk about an experience. I work at a substance use and mental health treatment. And so I see that firsthand, but it's, it's, it's a massive number of, of drinking age people. I think 80 or something like 80 or 90% of people drink. Now, not all of those people drink alcoholically or excessively, but a lot do. And it's increased tremendously. And we have sort of talked about that because as prevalent as AA is, it's not in everyone's radar there's the, you know, so and I, I think some of the hope with factory settings is is it can it can be i don't want to say a gateway to aa that's not what i really wanted at all yeah there's there's other ways to get sober but but it but it can be a place where you know maybe it allows someone to pause and gain just a little bit of self-reflection where where they can, you know, then then make a change, right? I maybe, and we, and I think we see that we get comments back. You're, you know, about you know, a episode being thought provoking, or it made me think this. And I'm not so naive to think that, you know, I'm going to go out and change a bunch of people's lives with this podcast. But the idea of maybe being able to have one or two people or somebody listen and and start that process of change is is important because that's stuff that I, I needed. I needed to hear that sort of stuff when I was getting sober. And before I even made the decision to be sober, I needed those little seeds planted. Yeah. And I definitely needed to hear from people who did it. I, I needed to just hear people's stories of how messed up they were and then yeah. how they did it. How, yeah. How do I do it? How do I do it? I'm tired of, I'm living the way I'm sick living. Sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. I don't want to feel this way anymore. Tell me what to do. It's funny that you say that people are not as aware of AA as we might think, because I always think of AA as just being omnipresent. Like it's, that is the factory setting of recovery. And I know that now there's like all this other stuff for recovery, sober coaches, for instance, and there's a whole kind of sober curiosity movement that like is for people who often, not always, but often like felt kind of alienated from AA because it was like really, either they couldn't get with the God stuff or it was like, I was so fucked up. This is so hardcore. You have to give everything over. I'm, you know, like it's, they, they feel very like, it's like, it's too harsh or something. And so I wonder like, it, do, how do you feel about these kinds of alternative recovery movements? I feel like whatever works. Yeah. I, I think, 
You mentioned A being the most known, and I think it is pretty well known. I think there's a people know of it. They don't really know about it. Right. Uh, a lot of people don't know what it's about. They hear of it. They have preconceived notions or or something. They think it's a cult. Yeah, but there there are a lot of others out there, smart recovery and harm reduction and medication management. California sober. California sober. There's all these things. My experience shows me AA works the best for the most, but there are other sort of ways to stay sober. And I don't, I don't want to tell someone, you know, to tr- not to try something that might work for them. Now I have, if push comes to shove, I'm, you know, and someone in my life needed to get sober, I would recommend them doing 12 step. But again, it doesn't mean there's not sort of other ways. And there are many people, I'm sure, who just realize they have a problem with something and then they just stop. Yeah. My question is, what is the quality of that person once they just stop? Because I know for me, after two years, I became the classic, you know, my life got bigger. I stopped going to as many meetings and then I was really dry. And I, I'm grateful that I had that almost year of being extremely dry to even fully understand what I was getting from 12 steps that I needed in sobriety more than just early sobriety. Like I understood why people were in it for the long haul because I get crunchy, you know, I get, yeah. I get dry. And so I, I have a friend who always asks a great question. He's like, how are you doing? And then he, he says, he always says this to newcomers or to anyone who's sober. And then he says, how is everyone around you doing? How's everyone in your life doing? Mm. Because a lot of the time it's just, I, I think I know I, for me, it's something I have to really work against and I worry, you know, I can just like wear people down. I think I can be, when I get dry, I just start, it's not good. Well, say what you mean by dry. What do you explain that? Hmm. I, I would say that the thing I get from 12 steps is this spiritual solution to my problems. And when I stop putting myself in the spiritual solution, I am now in self. And yeah, it's so- more about my me and my anxieties start to take over and I get passive aggressive and the resentment start building up and I start comparing and despairing and feeling like it's not enough. I mean, it, it could go on and on. It's just dry. Dry is, is largely sober and not really working any sort of program. Now, that might look differently like if you used, you know, AA and meditation and exercise and eating right and all these things to get sober and you do therapy and you sort of stop doing some of that stuff and become restless or discontent or irritable that, you know, that would be dry, right? When you're not, you're sober and you're not working your program. Yeah. You're not really emotionally sober. You're, you're, you're just not drinking. You're just using. not drinking. <laughs> But you're still so an that's asshole. The state, <laughs> <laughs> that's the state you had been in, Jaron, before you came to AA, because you said you had I, not been drinking. I for had, a yeah, couple of years. I, I, I had five years of what would be considered dry time. So I was, I was not using, I was not drinking, and I was not working a program, and it sort of spiraled into a really dark depression, actually. And on the heels of that, I scheduled a surgery. I, I was prescribed pain pills and abused those. And and that 
time, that brief period where I was abusing the pain pills uh, is when I, I, I made that call to action went, okay, I need help. I need to tell, tell some people I need help. And I have a family member who's in the program and they got me in AA and I've, I've been there ever since. Right. So we, we know a little bit about Bridget's background. Why don't you just talk a bit about yours? I know you've said that addiction was an unlikely path for you, at least it had seemed that way. You weren't like the stereotypical kid that gets into this. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, I had a upper middle class family. My father worked really hard and did really well. You know, my, I remember my mom drinking pretty heavily as a kid. Uh, but, but I remember going, oh, I, I'm, that's never going to be me. Alcohol's, I'm not going to drink. I've, I, I've kind of seen what it, it has done to my mom. And I think my dad drank heavily for a while and I was very turned off by how they acted when they drank. So I remember going, I'll, I'll never be an alcoholic, but no one told me about all the other stuff. Like I, I was completely naive to, you know, cocaine or crystal meth or, heroin <laughs> or really any of this stuff. And when those came around, uh, I, I was very susceptible to them because I was sort of an anxious child prone to escapism and, and isolation and, and, you know, flights of fantasy. And when I discovered uppers, that really was the solution for me. It made me, you know, more outgoing and better looking and charming and more intelligent, all these things that, that, you know, that I thought the drug did for me, uh, then, but yeah, it was, a, I don't think you would have looked back at, at my childhood and pegged me as maybe someone who goes down that road because um, it wasn't really in my family. Yeah, I said my mom and stuff drank, but I don't have any aunts and uncles that were alcoholic or. Uh, but two parents that are drinking a lot. But, two, but yeah, that's the. Yeah. But when did she stop? My, she stopped decades ago. She she drank. My mom drank very heavily when my parents got divorced when I was right around 10 and it was, she drank heavily for, for a number of years, but she sent me to live with my father when I was 16 because I just stopped going to school. And so she sent me to live with him. And mm -hmm. um, she probably drank for a few more years after that and then just stopped when I was in my 20s probably. And maybe now she has a half a glass of champagne every couple of years. She became Martha Stewart. Yeah. Basically, <laughs> my mom. So. But Bridget, you've also talked about how you like when you were a kid, you were like, I, I will never drink. You were like a really good kid for a long time. Yeah. I think Jaron and I actually share that. We were both, I was a very big nerd until, you know, all the moving, I think just wore me down as a kid. And I eventually realized that being a party animal just automatically got me into a group of friends, no matter which school I was in. And it was the easier, lazier way. And nobody was really pushing me to excel in the same way that they were when my parents were together, for instance. So, you know, no one was really watching after a certain age. And I just did a terrible job raising myself. <laughs> <laughs> we were both kind of latchkey kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was, it, it wasn't even like latchkey and it, it was in a sense, but it was, I came just home to kind of chaos. So okay. there was someone home. It just wasn't not necessarily present. And I I definitely was I had such high expectations for myself being the oldest of five and 
I was a really great student. I think Jaron was as well. And then once I started slipping in, it's so funny. The I, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, how all, all or nothing or black or white thinking I have had even since I was young, because even when I stopped getting straight A's, I was like, well, I might as well just fail out. And oh, I almost yeah. I almost failed out. <laughs> One or the other. Yeah. But that was, you know, pre I had started drinking at that point. But I see how that was playing out even when I was like a teenager. Yeah, it's you can see how that can happen. There's, I know, the, but the it's binary so, exists for a reason. Yeah, but it's right? so sad. Like I hear young people now and they're like, I'm I I gave up on myself so many times because I basically told myself I was too old. And this is part of the reason that Jaron and I really wanted to start this podcast is because we're both such late bloomers. And I want I I want people to feel hope like it's not all over if they're in rehab at 23 i yeah. was in rehab the first time at 19 and i was like well i guess my life is over yeah. 19 yeah oh, it's amazing God. Yeah. I, I was told Ugh. in in treatment when i got sober before i met bridget i had done a, a small stint in a treatment to help me get sober and i i was told in that treatment center by my therapist there that I was too old to become a therapist because I made the decision to go back to grad school when I got sober and become a therapist when I got sober. And I was how old were you? I was 40, 42. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're too old to like go to medical school probably or. Yeah, but maybe eight years is maybe a little bit too met too you know too yeah. many but grad school yeah, it's that's two, like years. two years no, like, that's uh, fine please oh my god yeah, yeah but that's my my therapist maybe she meant you were too old like you you wouldn't be able to stand the the youth like you were just too, <laughs> I mean, there is, you were there the is wrong that. generation my grad school experience was <laughs> hilarious but yeah but it, you know my i didn't really come into my own until you know my 40s for sure my 20s and 30s were largely a disaster <laughs> Yeah. I, I want to hear about the kinds of clients you work with, Jaren. You, so you work with young people. Are we talking about like teenagers? Who's your, your client base? Yeah. So without getting into too many specifics, I work with a lot of um, men of all ages, like 18 to 65 on a, in substance use and mental health. And I also help with a, a teen program. So where I work has a teen track, like an after school teen track you know, five days a week from say four to seven. And, and that's anywhere from 13 to 17. And that's and all genders. That's men and men and women. <laughs> and it's mostly mental health issues. It's not uh, primarily. Substance and is this abuse. through like the school or what? What's... No, it's through private. It's mostly through private pay or insurance. They're, they're looking for help. So they come. Yeah. They're, they're coming either coming from residential or they're tr trying therapy for the first time um you, you know we, you see so many young men and women teenagers really struggled through the pandemic so we're seeing a lot of people that this is actually their first exposure to the therapeutic world they're getting a, the parents feel overwhelmed and so they're getting a primary therapist and then they come and they do group therapy as well and i'm one of the therapists that sees them individually and then runs groups for teens okay so what kinds of issues are you seeing I mean, you it, you see the whole sort of spectrum. It's primarily depression, anxiety, and then 
I mean, you see a lot of eating disorder stuff, though we're not an eating disorder clinic. We, we see a lot of people still struggling uh, with that. Um, but yeah, primarily anxiety, depression, self-harm. I mean, you name it, we've sort of seen it. But I, I think if I had to just say two, the two big ones are anxiety, depression. And, um, so much of it's, a lot of it's just from not being able to socialize for two years. They were kept in masks and kept home from school for two years. And just at a point where you're kind of learning how to interact with people in public and gain some autonomy and do these things. And then they had that taken back and it's their development's been stunted almost in a way. And so they don't, they don't have any tools to cope with this, these feelings of anxiety that come up when they're trying to interact with people. It's, it's sad. It's, it's when I think about it, that, you know, what, what a lot of these kids had to go through. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here. I've been doing this show every week for more than two years and I pretty much do it all by myself. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, or secret investment cabal. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. The old way of doing that was through Patreon. Now listeners support the podcast through my Substack page, megandaum.substack.com. You can subscribe for free, or you can become a paid subscriber for as little as $7 a month. That gets you extras related to the unspeakable. Things like early and ad-free access to the show, access to bonus content, and the opportunity to leave comments. If you join at the founding member level, you can join us every month on Zoom, where a bunch of us get together and talk about recent episodes. Best of all, if you become a paying subscriber at any level, you'll never have to hear this message again. So go to megandaum.substack.com, that's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M, and join our community on the level that's right for you. And honestly, just telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, spreading the word means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking about. And with that, back to the interview. Are you seeing eating disorders in boys as well? Is that what you're saying? Uh, not, not as much, but yes, it's it's definitely more prevalent in in women, but but you see it in men as well. And and are you seeing the kinds of things that we're talking more and more about? Just a sort of crisis among boys and men. Like you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the details of this. We've yeah, I've, I've read all yeah, of our podcasts. Yeah, no, I've Jordan looked at Peterson, the, the, the war, you know, the war on boys, and I've I've read well the Richard Reeves book of boys and men. Yeah, I mean, and then Christina Hoff Summers has written about it. I've read yeah. some of that stuff, and I, you know what, I, I, I'm not seeing it as much, but. I, because I'd say we probably get more women teen clients, but we have had a few of the men, but I'm seeing it actually through the lens of a lot of the women that come into our program and how they talk about men, if oh, that yeah. makes sense, That's interesting. how they, they talk about, you know, they're, you know, either jerks or being belittled or emasculated. Um, so it's not, it's more secondhand um, information I'm getting about about the men because we do it, it does tend to skew a lot towards women in the young person it, in the like 
not teen population, do you see people struggling, the men struggling with that? Not, not as much as I would have thought, because I'm very online. So I'm in, so I'm that, that space, those books we talked about and the Jordan Peterson stuff. I, I see. Jaron was an incel. <laughs> I was a vol, vol, no voluntary cell, voluntary cell. <laughs> he was a vol cell. A vol cell. <laughs> a vol cell. Yeah, that but, can be, that can be. False. It be a it's a new say thing. You're I'm like a monk. Start a so movement. you're just meditating. Yeah, for, for, for five years or so. I mean, there's like a cool way of being a, a celibate, right? I think if, as long as you're say like it's you're very it's a it's a prolonged. It's a choice. Yeah, and as long as people know that it's a choice, yeah. right? You've got to know. It's right. a, oh, no, 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 it's a choice. I could have had sex at any time. <laughs> That's why it's weird totally. that everyone adopts the incel is like they wear that as why. That's weird it, to admit. It involves you have no choice because yeah. it's involuntary. So yeah, but it's, tough, it's, it's of course community. it's a choice. Yeah, I mean it's not. Invo- I mean it's ultimately a choice. But okay, so you this is fascinating because you're not seeing like these guys saying I can't get a girlfriend or these women no. are so mean. Like I mean, screw them. Some of this might be that we're you know we're doing a lot of triage we're looking at a lot of people in the acute acute stages mm. of sobriety and recovery mm. so they're 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 still worried about staying sober like and how they're gonna going to pay for jail. rent at the yeah. sober living or not right. going to jail something along those lines getting their car back you know i i do see it i also i also you know when it when it does kind of come up you have to be very careful in a lot of these group settings so that it doesn't just turn into people complaining sort of about things i think there's a space for that but <laughs> yes, but it's but that. it can't you know no. you've got you've got to be Hanging somewhat with careful friends. with some of the language yeah. used and I, I i'm i remember starting there and going oh, i'm going to use all this stuff from jordan peterson and bring all these things because the guys are going to be feeling you know emasculated and there's no place for them in society and they didn't i didn't get any of that <laughs> i was like okay well i need oh, some new damn. material <laughs> uh. Yeah, so it's it's, it's pivoted. Oh, you'll get there one day. Yeah. Yeah, I that's, don't. I, that's a I, I, I see it. It's just sort of more isolated. It's not. They're not bonding over this, you know, feelings of like they're being left out of society because uh, they're, you know, or you know, like I'm a white man. I can't get a job. I'm not. I just don't. I just don't see it in in, in my everyday job, at least. But it's there. It's there. Bridget, do you have thoughts about this? About this whole sort of line of thinking this whole line of inquiry yeah i i don't i don't know i don't know where it is you know i wonder if it's if it's very online if it's like i know it exists but i don't i i would like to see where this exists or if it's younger or if it's in in other parts of the country i mean i i also don't know if it's because of where we live and because I don't know where all of the clients are coming from, but are they local or are they, you know, is this something that exists in like these rust belt towns that have been left behind? You know, we get a pretty good cross hatch of the country. People come from all over to get sober in California. because It's got such a robust sober community. Uh, I was thinking I I mentioned maybe it's skews a little younger because I have a lot of the teen clients talk about the guys and some of the, guys the some of the um people the young men idolize according to these women are like andrew tate yes i was trying to think of his name there i've heard that probably half a dozen times that these boys they're into worship andrew tate who i know very little other 
you know, very little about other than he seems like this hyper-masculine yeah. sort of response to something. So, you know, again, anecdotally, that's what where I'm seeing it is a little bit more in the younger populations. Right. There just does seem to be, in general, such a victim mentality that every day and everywhere it feels like someone is trying to push, you know, push that. And I think it's just like everywhere in the culture, yeah. men and women. Yeah, because the that's I'm, true. I'm thinking in in the the groups that I run for the older clients, there we don't there isn't a discussion about pronouns or gender or that that stuff does not come up but with the teen clients oh. that stuff always comes up mm. it's always around the peripheries of the conversation where they're talking about pronouns or i'm dating someone who's trans and this or that like so i, I feel like that's you know where it's more likely to show up right now and how do they feel about that are they is it just a matter of course like they're fine with the pronoun thing. It's just part of their lives. Yeah. They, every once in a while, there's, you know, one or two that might push back a little in private, but not in front of the group. They're all, they're all kind of on board with it. It's, yeah. it's, it's, yeah. Who was I talking to who said that, you know, the kids are all on, I, I can't remember who it was, but they were like, the kids are all on board with this. So it's too, it's too late. You know, it's too late to try and there it all it's like normal for them yeah it's just the normal way of of their existence yeah, knowing the, each other's pronouns and this is where i wonder if it is sort of a regional thing because the teen clients are all from here and mm -hmm. we don't, we're not flying in teen clients so I, right. I do wonder if that's a very metropolitan you know if you i might. don't know they learn this stuff on tiktok yeah lots of places yeah, yeah. I, I i know it's people TikTok. in all kinds of cities, TikTok. different parts of the country that yeah. are oh, gosh, going through yeah. this with their kids. But like, I mean, because sometimes I think about this and the pronoun thing and even non-binary, like there's part of me that says, well, who cares? This is just kind of a like a psychological framework that is maybe a different bucket than getting body parts chopped off. It is of but a whole system of medical establishment you know yeah i think it's it is it is i agree j just like different buckets but i also worry that it distracts from what actually might be going on with them because there's so much focus on the identity and the the pronoun and all of this they might not be addressing the eating disorder for example yeah is this just a sort of another maladaptive coping mechanism or something to try to ease or soothe some anxiety. Well, and just a way to form an identity around something at that young age when I, you know, I always joke like, go become a party animal or a goth like we did when we were Gen <laughs> <Goth>. X. <laughs> like, you don't need to do yeah. all this come up cis net, cis het, like ling lingo and and yeah, I just sometimes I wonder if I'm, you know, a curmudgeon or if I'm just the old, I'm now the old who are like, what's up with these kids? And they're, this is just their new language. Or if it is something that is like a phase or a contagion that will just burn out and they're all going to look back and be like, whoa, that was weird. Kind of like us with the hyper color shirts. Oh my God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we are going to look back and say that was weird, but there's also a, a medical scandal going on. There's going to be a lot of people who are damaged by this 
I just, I think that uh, it might be important to separate these, like these, these two things. I think people on the, the conversation is so frustrating because people on the left are like, oh, this is no big deal. Get over it. Time marches on. And then people on the right are like, this is all terrible. Yeah. There's, know, no, some there's teenager, no nuance to it. No, like that's some teenager in, yeah. 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 No, go ahead, Jaron. What were you going to say? No, I definitely have. I, you know, I see that, and I have very strong thoughts on a lot of these things that I, I have to tr sort of try not to take into, you know, the room, the therapeutic rooms with me, gender affirming care versus sort of watchful waiting, because we've sort of conflated gender affirming care with a lot of different things, you know, cross sex hormones, puberty blockers, double mastectomies, whereas you know, gender affirming care should in its simplest form be psychotherapy. Right. Right. But, it, but because we, we can't separate those things, you know, there's very little progress able to be made. And that, that, Do you that, have, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, that, that sort of push for gender affirming care, especially here in California, you, know, you have CAMP, the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapists and the APA, the American Psychological Association, all push the gender affirming, you know, model. And I think we're just more and more seeing that that's not a viable model right now. Do you have kids in your client base that are taking puberty blockers, for instance, or cross-sex hormones? Yeah, I, I, I don't really want to get into too many specifics um, about clients but you know okay i'm just it's would be hard to treat them i mean where do you even start how do you separate how do you know what's going on and this is this is a personal thing that i struggle with sort of all the time is how how do i how do i how do i do that how do i work with someone that you know i i completely disagree with that and thankfully i've been able to sort of create boundaries around what you know who i will work with and who i necessarily won't work with or feel I'm not able to help if this is what is required of them. And there's a lot of sort of ethical considerations that go into this that I've got to be somewhat careful for. But if I, if I can't provide someone with the best level of care that I can, then I may not be the therapist for that person. And that's a tough conversation for a lot of therapists to have. So I think they put themselves in positions where there may be, there may be doing something they don't agree with morally or ethically. Thankfully, I, like I said, I've avoided a lot of those, uh, I think if someone comes and they're in the acute stages of that and they require a level of, of, of medical care, that where I work is probably not the appropriate place for them. They probably need something maybe more than, than we offer at, at, at where I work, at least. Yeah, because, I mean, that changes your brain. Yeah. If you are on, if you're taking hormones, I mean, hormones change your brain if they're natural to your body. So if you are taking synthetic hormones, I would imagine that would just become a huge part of your cognitive profile. So it would just. Yeah, I don't I, I, I don't see how it could not. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm trying <sighs> to be as diplomatic as I can in some of these answers. Bridget, do you I feel like do you feel like you have to um, I feel like you don't hit the trans stuff as much as some people do. I, I, it's, I find it so fascinating as a topic that I have to rein myself in because. Oh, I, I do. I just do on dumpster fire. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, so, it's pretty prevalent on dumpster fire. I mean, in, in and out, it, we go through phases depending on what's in the news, but I don't, I don't hit it that hard. And I have on the podcast just by virtue of the people that I've had on the show, Buck Angel, 
um, Blair White detransitioners. You know, I think that I I do it. I try to do it in a way that is more productive for me. Then I I'm not gonna like fight with people online about this stuff. I just don't find it productive. Some people find it very productive. Some people know that that kind of public fight generates lots of subscribers for their Substack, and that works for them. I don't like to kick a hornet's nest to generate subscribers. It's probably why I'm not, you know, a millionaire. But I just don't. I'm. I'm not. I don't want to I don't want to do that. I've done I've had those years where I was like battling on Twitter and it just it's so my time can be spent so many other places and now especially having a daughter it just it's not it doesn't bring out the best of me and I think that I do go after it. I try to make light of it. It's a lot of the time it will end up in breaking Bridget when there's something that's just ridiculous and insane. I do worry because I have so many friends now who are dealing with this with their kids. It's crazy. It is great for people to be like, this isn't a contagion. It's so dishonest. It's so dishonest. This was how can you a person who grew up when you grew up and didn't maybe never knew a single trans kid in your entire life be like, oh, my my child and all their friends are non-binary and trans, and that's not a contagion. Right. It's just a natural occurrence. It's just natural. They're There's free just... to come out. If, well, right. And, and if it's because everybody's now free to come out, how come middle-aged people aren't coming out? Yeah, yeah. This is these are very like, specific populations cohort. where you're seeing the same. <laughs> yeah. This is not left-handedness. <laughs> it's, it's oh, common I know. Or red-hairedness. To... That's the other one. Yeah, yeah, as common as red hair. Um, so, well, I want to make sure, you know, we, we talk enough about your podcast. So like, how do you come up with your ideas? Do you prepare? Is it just like an extension of your pillow talk? Like what, how do you kind of organize factory settings? Yeah, uh, we do a little bit of preparation. I'll, I'll, I'll read or research some articles or I have things that I'll, that I'll get together on a, on a subject. We, it, it's very organic though, is if you've listened to the podcast, we've, you know, we joke about having the whiteboard because as we talk, things come up and we just add them to this list. So we have this, we have this shared notes document where we're constantly just adding things to and editing to things that are Im important to us. Cause there, there is that feeling that if, if we're excited or or passionate or really looking forward to talk about something that'll be translated into the podcast. Uh, you know, she, she mentioned earlier that we were going to be much more topical or we thought we were going to get more into politics and the cultural wars. And it kind of organically has become a little bit more of a lifestyle <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah. as we, we kind of, of joke, yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, you know, we talk about it throughout the week. The audience drives a lot of it too. So I'll in my in my locals community at fetacy.com and on our Substack, we'll ask our subscribers what topics they want us to cover and it's usually much more philosophical and I don't know, there it's we asked if they wanted us to cover the midterms after the midterms. It seemed like everybody <laughs> was really blackpilled in in, in my community. <laughs> People were like I don't no matter which side they were from, it just seemed like they were just over it. And they were like, no. Yeah, they, they were just, all they past. Were, We'd rather have something now on. Now people are 
sick of it. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. just didn't that that's not what they're wanting from us. And I think they like them just more themed where I, I loved the last one we did on gratitude because it it is or regret, for instance, it is just like, all right, let's pick a word. And sometimes like I came with a poem once that I found, but let's talk about what our factory setting is around this concept or this theme or this word or whatever. Is it is when was your first time you even became aware of gratitude? What was your experience with it growing up? How was it modeled? All of that stuff is so interesting to me. And I get to know things about my husband that I don't even know or never would have heard. And I know, do you really not know these things? No, like I you're don't. You're asking him about his life. And I'm like, is that really the first time she's learning this? Yeah, a yeah. lot of the time it is. Because when do you talk about like gratitude with your partner in... I don't know. It's just a lot of the time it's it's the first time. And I also think like the it's always a lot of new things come up for me, too. It is a little bit just I can see why people feel voyeuristic, but often the comments are long, long notes, people talking about their experience with gratitude. Thank you. This brought this up for me or this echoes or made sense. Uh, I talked a lot about depression and being like high functioning, depressive and people are, you know, thank you. I'd never heard that term and that describes me. And then here's what it was like for me. I, I mean, I love that. I love that stuff. I just always think of Jack Kerouac's quote, which really informs most of my writing and most of my work, which is, I have nothing to offer the world but my confusion or something along those lines. And that that really is, I think, at the heart of this show is trying to untangle. I want people to start evaluating their own, you know, the way they even interact with media, which is why I think we will get into topical stuff in stories but from a perspective of how am I, how are my biases affecting clouding my vision? How is this clouding my relationships? How is it clouding my the way I'm raising my children? How is it clouding? I mean, just being a conservative and a Democrat historically, the way we will view trending news story is always and often hilarious. <laughs> but we're but we're also very aware <laughs> of that bias or that lens, whatever Wait, lens. Say more we're about that. For. Can you give an example? Um, just the default. I I even even as far as I've come into the politically homeless space on my own, you know, whatever like political journey that I've been on being so lost the past couple of years, my factory setting default is conservatives are pieces of shit assholes bad <laughs> trying to you know destroy and take away women's right like it's still there it's still my default <laughs> yeah and i and i, and I definitely have that democrats or liberals are just idiots. completely uninformed <laughs> idiots that they with that know. react emotionally yeah which and is I, true and, <laughs> which is true right these are yeah <laughs> Yeah, I know exactly. So, we, so you're you were still a conservative, Jaron? Like you were like a. It's interesting how like a young, educated person like who goes to college and like hangs around with people like it's it's hard to imagine that you would a drug a addict, a conservative drug yeah, addict. Yeah, that's, that's really I was talking brand. about Reagan very often when I was getting high. 
um, <laughs> extolling the virtues like, of trickle-down economics. That you annoying like math. Frederick Hayek, yes. That annoying math that yeah. is like, have I talked to you about trickle-down economics? <laughs> well, <laughs> you'd, you'd be so, it didn't, I mean, in, I was raised um, conservative. My father, my parents are both, I, I, my parents make, me look like AOC. <laughs> to, to be honest, they have gotten gone way far to the left than than where either of them the, were the growing right. up. Right? They really bought into this the the politics over the course of the last. And mine are mad libs. Ten years, so they make yes. me look like Alex okay. Jones. Yeah, they're like, we don't watch Fox anymore because it's not right enough. That's his or parents. one American wow. news. We only watch Newsmax. Yeah, like that. And I'm and that's I'm not that. I, I identify with a lot of conservative values, but you know, I, but I'm still you know. There's a big part of me that's turned off by the word Republican because it's just. I think at the end of the day, I, I've I have come to look more at politicians or politicians it doesn't matter what side of the aisle they are on i think they're all kind of pieces of shit <laughs> in a way and they're all out to do their own thing uh it's just whose policies would i rather see enacted right can i sort of separate all this stuff from the policy and that's so hard to do right because i'm human and i react to all these things but but you know that's 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 what I try to do at the end of the, day, of the day is boil it down to what policies do I sort of support? What can I live with? What can I, what is there wiggle room on or is there room for me to negotiate on? And, and where, you know, what are my sort of principles at the end of the day? And I don't always know what those are, but they generally more often than not align with right of center conservative. I had a designer that I was working with when I was a Playboy and when I was I was trying to get him to do the design for factory settings because he's brilliant. And I was telling him about the show and the concept and where it came up. You know, he was asking me for just design ideas and he refused to do my podcast design because he said that I that we stood centrism is everything that he's against. He's very, very, very far left like socialist left and and said to me that and asked me if my if I had moved more right since I was with oh, yes. my husband, which was and like the was, most sexist fucking question mm, ever. Yeah. 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 That we didn't both kind of more meet in the middle. Which it is had where to we, be because of me. That yeah. You, you became <laughs> that I became red build moved towards the middle. It was so. And so, so this I, person is turning down work. Yeah. Because on political grounds. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I mean, yeah. And there is this sort of belief that when push comes to shove and everyone's forced to pick a side, if that comes, I always joke with Bridget that we, Bridget and I are both on team Mitch and that's <laughs> team Mitch McConnell, right? Whatever I think of him, like that's the side he's we're not, on. He's not the speaker. No, I know, but I'm just saying he, he was never the speaker. Or not the, he's he, not the that's whatever. The, the, you know, the left leader. will not have Bridget, even if a lot of her values lie on that side. I wouldn't, I don't want to be on that side, but we're, we're all team Mitch in the end. And whatever you think of him, scumbag, brilliant politician, liar, we're on team Mitch. So in my mind, I have that. There's that part of me that's, you know, there are sides here. And and I that's a factory setting. I have to sort of fight that tribalism. Wow, it's a very that's human. Pretty, that's okay. That's a pretty strong statement. 
Yeah. You're on Mitch McConnell's side. Well, do I think it's going <laughs> to... drives well, me crazy. And, well, because if you're, if you're forced to choose right or left... McConnell's going to be on the right. So you're with, I'm, I'm going to be with all these people. I don't want to be with if I am forced to pick sides. Well, Jaron's point to me is like the left wouldn't have me anyway. The left wouldn't have you He's anyway. Like, they, you have, they won't even have you. Even if I chose that team, they'd be like, get the fuck out of here, Nazi. Yeah, yeah you're excluded. See, Too much. <laughs> I, we had to get I'm Nazi in, in. I am interested in this idea like of what is a conservative because Trump is not a conservative. He's like, this is the new right, though. This is Michael Malice's whole book. And I think even seeing what's going on with your parents, I'm like, they might be part of the new right. This yeah, is, no. This is the idea that yeah. there's a new there's a new right wing. Yeah. But I don't think the right is necessarily conservative. So I'm interested in this idea of having a conservative personality. I think I'm a conservative person personally. Mm. Okay. So I don't know how that translates into my politics necessarily, but I definitely don't like it when people don't comport themselves well. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> what, what are those way. qualities <laughs> like, that make you a conservative? I don't like pussy hats. I don't like <laughs> pussy hat march. I don't like people acting out. I don't like people shooting undermining up themselves by, act, by acting. Well, that too, but I don't like, I, like this was my problem with like third and fourth wave feminism. I felt that it undermined feminism. As a feminist, it, it, it worried me because I felt like you're just, it's this sort of performative kind of, it just felt very juvenile to me. And it, I, I really worry, it made me worry for the cause, frankly. What, were you a rebel growing up at all? Or were you a, a rule follower? No, but I thought, well, I was a, it's funny because I was a rule follower, but like, then I grew up to be like in my writing, I was just totally the opposite of that. I think that I'm very much in my, well, it's hard to say. I definitely, I, I have a people pleasing bad habit, but um, I definitely, you know, I live my life the way I want. I'm, you know, I don't, I'm kind of against the grain. Like I don't have kids. I'm not married. Like I don't, I'm not really interested in family life. Like I just have very sort of contrarian personal preferences, but um, I don't know. I just, I want people to act appropriately. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I can, so. I can get on board with that. Let's act appropriately. people. <laughs> but I don't know if that, I feel like I'm I'm like a personal conservative. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, that's tough because I mean I would I would say just your just your views on the trans stuff feels like you would be excluded from Team Mitch. the left. Like you would be on Team Mitch by <laughs> oh, default. Oh, I'm definitely as well. excluded. No. What about how about Mitt Romney? Can we say Team Mitt? Not well, I mean Mitch. if I mean if we can admit that they're both on the same team, Mitch. I like but that's yeah. the point is that Mitch, a lot of, you know, you might find him revolting <laughs> and I, and I, you know, or you might find him an amazing shrewd politician, but you're, you like some, these are the people you're going to be on the same team with, whether it's right or left, you know, or you're going to be on yeah. team. See, I don't want to be on a team. I guess well, that's that, and that's, I yeah, like I, that's sports. the goal. That's the hope is that I don't have to pick sides. I don't want to have to pick sides you always try and make me pick side though and you're like you have the deciding vote and i'm like i'll kill well, myself those are, just, those are hypothetical <laughs> questions <laughs> don't, because then don't i vote. think those are interesting that's not an option 
He never gives me that option. He said, you have the deciding vote. He does. He's like, you don't understand how this works. And I'm like, then I kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's looking yeah. for option I don't C. know. I like to be a, just a solo runner. I don't want to be on a team. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I'm registered as an independent. So I don't know if that yeah, me too. means anything. I am. That's just, you're a squish. Yeah. yeah. I know. I, had, I registered as an independent, like, I mean, a long time ago, probably like 2010 or something. So this yeah. is something interesting, though, that comes up a lot when we do the letters to the politically homeless. There is a group of people in our in our community who just absolutely shits on every single one of them as part of the problem. And someone said this this letter is a good example of why centrism and these kinds of politically homeless people are a problem because they don't stand for anything and they don't really even know what they stand for themselves. And I, I can say I'm, I'm pretty guilty of that. But that's the Jack Kerouac principle, what you just said. Yeah. All you, the best you can do is put your confusion out into the world. So I think that that's actually the most honest position. Yeah. I, How's that for a cop out? No, I think, no, I see. And I, I love this. And I think this should be the principle that most people should be able to ad adopt. And I feel like in a, in a way we could, there could be the sort of a la carte selection of values where I could pick these that would traditionally be conservative and these that would traditionally be liberal. And then I have these that I don't know about. I may be on the fence about and I haven't figured it out. But but things have become so polarized that's less that seems like less of an option now, and a lot of people have embraced that centrism is you know are the, are the people that are the problem are the problem. But and they like, say like, this we on should the left all too. Be centrist. The left will say this. this. The left too, because it's it yeah. Because, because I've heard that I'm you know that Martin Luther King had a lot to say about centrists and oh beware the white moderate. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Toward the end of his life. Yeah. yeah. So there's, I've heard it from both sides. Yeah. Uh, how, so there you go. How much of a baddie. But you've held the line. We need to, <laughs> you've held the line. Yeah, you and Joe Rogan. You're not going to bully me. Revive centrism. You're not going to. Remember that book, Feminism is for Everybody? We need to have centrism is for everybody. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. <laughs> it's, make centrism sexy again. Make centrism. I like uh, that. Yeah. All right. Well, before I let you go, I want to ask you both something. And, I, you know, Bridget, you and I have talked about this before, just the endless content that one must create in order to like stay afloat in this new world of independent media, podcasting, substacking, YouTubing, all this. Jaren, you're, from what I can tell, like pretty new to the media game. I wonder, like, as somebody who's coming into this in this moment, like, how does it appear to you? Like, do you just look at all these people scrambling around and saying like, holy shit, how does anyone do this? Or does it seem sort of like interesting or exciting or manageable to you? Yeah, I think it's, it's, you know, the answer probably lies somewhere in the middle. There is an exciting. In the middle? <laughs> in the middle, right. The, <laughs> of course. Of course. Um, <laughs> the, the, it, you know, it, it's exciting to see all these people be able to put out their ideas and find ways to create content and get it out there that maybe the opportunity wasn't there not that long ago. I, I have, I go through moments where I feel it's so oversaturated and there's so much, how can it keep going on? But as I've 
gotten more involved in Bridget's community and the content she's created, those fears or anxieties have become lessened because I, I, I believe in what she's doing. Uh, I believe uh, that her content's funny. I believe it's helping people. I believe she loves it doing it even when it's uh, you know when when it's oh, seems overwhelming or it's too much she's got this uh this sign that one of the people sent you what does it say it's not about you yeah it's not about you it's kind of a a, a, a mantra that she goes thanks a lot <laughs> what uh-huh thanks a lot yeah. yeah well it's not about you but it okay but how does that help you like be able to create the next piece of content because a lot of the time when I want to just give up, I, so I've been trying to be an independent creator before everyone was independent creators. It's like since I was 19, I basically chose this path. And so it's not, I don't have a lot of the anxiety around it. I still have financial insecurity oh, and I probably always will, but I don't have the anxiety about, oh no, how am I going to make it? Because I've been in that space for so long that this is so so much bigger and more than I ever probably could have expected at a certain point. And I'm kind of used to living in that state of uncertainty when it comes to creating content. But I do know that there have definitely been times where I'm like, I've, I'm not doing this anymore for whatever reason, whether it's because I'm being piled on or because I feel like everyone around me is doing better or ev everyone in this space is a narcissistic sociopath. And what does that mean about me? <laughs> and I want to quit. And then always on that day. Oh, it's unbelievable, actually. But always in that moment is someone with an email or a DM or a letter saying, telling me some story about how it helped them and it's having a real effect and not to think that it wasn't. And then that's where that kind of idea of it's not about you came from. Like it, it, it's really not at the end of the day. I'm just, I do feel like I'm a, a channel and so a lot of this stuff moves through me and particularly, particularly when I write and Megan, you probably have, maybe the same experience where you you're kind of figuring things out as you're writing and this is what happens to me with factory settings i it's like i don't it it's one of the few times when i'm having uh when i'm talking where i feel like i'm tr working something out in real time in the same way that i do when i'm writing and i'm always uh, often surprised and that that's you know, trying to stay in love with the process of it and just continuing to show up and be disciplined is is really all I can do. And and it's it's like a gift to be able to create something with my husband that I I I look forward to sitting down and doing the podcast with him. And it and because we have a daughter now, it does feel like that one hour where we get to just, you know, sit down as adults and connect. We don't have to go out and do it. Yeah. And we, we didn't even talk about your daughter. So that's fine. That's congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. How, what is it like your old, your old parents? I know. I mean, greater than anything I could have imagined. Yeah, it really is. Like, I just can't even, I still can't get my mind around it. It's just, 
Wild. It's wild. It's wild because she's such a little personality and she's not even talking and walking yet. And I'm yeah. like, oh, gosh. I think it's, it's, <laughs> it's wild to me because... She's going to have to have her own podcast. Soon. She, yeah, she probably got, will. We have some cute pictures of her with the headphones on sitting yeah, at the Yeah, she already wants table. that. She's not... I know. It's, she's not even old enough to be like, let me in, mommy. I want to record. <laughs> I know that's coming soon. Soon. So, yeah, it's oh it's been God, just... hilarious. I love I love it. It's been... I actually love being a mom so much more than I thought I would love being a mom, which is another thing I'll probably write about because I was, I am and was so self-centered and such a lone wolf like you. And so just yeah. like I looked at people who had kids and th- I, I understood, I could conceive of how it would be, but it, it, you know, wonderful, but it seemed like such a thankless job from the outside. It just seemed like an, a true act of service. Yeah. Um, Neither of us wanted to have kids until we met each other. It was never even a thought. Yeah, I think that's really interesting the way you talk about it. And I'm glad you talk about that so honestly. Yeah, and it wasn't, it wasn't some, and we were okay when I found out that I was in menopause early, we sat down and we were like, should we try and do the, you know, like egg harvesting and all that stuff. And I went through like one step of the process of getting prenatals. And then I was like, what am I doing? And Jaron and I had a really very heart to heart conversation on the beach when we were visiting my family and I'd seen all my siblings with their kids. And I kept waiting for that, like longing to be triggered when I was holding all the babies and it just never really came. And we were, I was like, we can be, we can travel and have money yeah, we will, you know, be the people that take care of everybody else. Yeah, we'll help just... our parents when they're aging because we won't have kids and they'll be busy with their kids. And I was pregnant the yeah. whole time. Um, <laughs> wow. I guess that's down the drain. You're not going to be helping anybody. Yeah. So much. Well, we have one. You can still you can still travel with one. Yeah, we have one. One is the one new zero. Yeah. One is the new yeah. zero. <laughs> one is that's great. One is, yeah, Goal that's has been moved. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, congratulations and congratulations on the podcast. It's really it's a really nice podcast. I I like listening to it. It's super interesting and also kind of soothing in a in a way. Thank you. Um your voices are both very soothing. Oh, you're the first um, interview we've done in This might only be only the second one I've ever done other than yeah. on your podcast. Oh, yeah. but this is the first yeah. time anyone's interviewed us about the podcast. Yeah, so. it was a lot of fun. Thank you. Oh, good. Yeah, good. All right. Well, come back again sometime. We'd love to. And we'll, we're okay. going to start having one of our, you know, people we have on. big ambitions for factory settings. And one of them is to start having people on and asking them about their factory settings. Should All right. I definitely, definitely have some. <laughs> They're set. <laughs> they have not moved. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. you. That was my conversation with Jaron Montgomery and Bridget Fettesey. They are the co-hosts of the podcast Factory Settings, which you can find wherever you get your podcasts and also at bridgetfettesey.substack.com, where you can find all of Bridget's many projects. 
This is the Unspeakable Podcast, which you can find uh, also wherever you get your podcasts and also at my Substack, which is megandaum.substack.com. I've been doing writing there, new essays. You can also get early ad-free access to uh, this podcast if you become a paying subscriber. If you become a founding member, you have the opportunity to participate in monthly hangouts that we do on Zoom that I always come to and that are really, really super interesting. Anyway, lots of good stuff. Again, the Unspeakeasy has two retreats planned for the beginning of 2023. The first one in Los Angeles, February 18th and 19th. The second one outside of Seattle, April 17th through 20th with Katie Herzog as our guest. If you're interested, go to theunspeakeasy.com. That is it. I will be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Mm -hmm.